Hi, I'm Sven Fersing from Cinemaware, and you are listening to Scene World Podcast. The Scene World Podcast, yeah. Oh, that didn't really. Oh, that that. was beautiful. What are you talking about? No, that one. No, please. No, we talk. (laughs) We talk into each other. That's bad. (laughs) So, do you Uh, want to welcome the people or me? You can. I'll let you do it. Okay. Hello, everybody. This is the Scene World Podcast, and this time I'm welcoming you. And, uh, well, I hope you had a good time and, um, well, didn't wait too long for listening to this one. In a minute, we're going to be talking to Kim Justice, who is one of the foremost um, YouTubers and personalities in the retro computing scene. So she's on in just a minute. Uh, before that, we have some some news. Jurg was at Gamescom, right? So nice. we were there with um, Martin Amann, Martin Wiesnowski, Arthur Van Damme, and three helpers that we met at the McDonald's, the Gamescom before. <laughs> so, yes, seriously. <laughs> Just drafting people from the McDonald's. Yes. We get everybody convinced to work for SceneWorld. Um, and those have a printing business, um, merchandise and stuff. So we had um, very good <clears throat> banners and all that. So it was pretty awesome. Um, and, and we got some pretty good news at Gamescom, actually, retro-related. For example, on um, a juice day of uh, Gamescom, though, the first day of Gamescom, um, Ubisoft announced there will be a new Settlers part. Ooh. Um, which is um, actually <clears throat> one of those games that originally belonged to Blue Bytes Software. That was a big uh, Amiga game, right? Yes, and it was the first game to support two Marvel. <laughs> Sorry, you're you're you spent so much time yelling at Gamescom that yeah that he exactly. now he needs a lozenge. You need a lozenge, my man. Here, here, here you go. Here what, you go. What, what oh, is just, that? A lozenge, you know, like a like a like a throat drop. I I just took that. Oh, okay. I was gonna say I'll just reach across the desk here and hand one to you. Yeah, there just you did there, that. Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> Exactly. <clears throat> and it was the first game that um, supported two mouse players yes. at the same time. Really? How, well, how, I've, never, I've never actually played The Settlers. I've, I've heard of it, and I'm sure I've seen some kind of video of it, but um, yeah. how does that work? Two, like two different mouses plugged in, or do you just share yes. the one mouse? Yeah, mice. I wonder how many Amiga users actually had two mice. I have no idea. Because but, generally, um, yeah, generally from what I've I've gathered, you know, just from, I've got an A500 and, you know, usually you have a, your mouse goes into like port one and um, 
Port two is what you would plug your joystick into usually. Kind of, kind of the same with the sixty four. Port one, I never really used it except for the uh, for the mouse. You know, maybe two or three games might have used port one for the joystick, but usually it was port two. Yeah, I'm like like on the C sixty four. Right, right. Um, never played it on the Amiga, as I never never had an Amiga, but um, I played the original of ninety three on a PC, and I actually tried it out. And it really worked with two mices, mouses, mice, no, whatever. Mises. Mises. <laughs> so it worked. It worked. Right. Okay. Um, if it worked on the Amiga 2, I don't know. But maybe maybe some um, listener to our show can email us or post a comment on our homepage. When you scroll down on the podcast episode page, you can leave a Facebook comment. Maybe you can leave a Facebook comment if um, Simultaneous Mouse Support was added on the Amiga version. Hmm. So we can we can um, tell our listeners about that the next time. And maybe if you have two mouse and you have the Amiga game, you can try it out and tell us. That would be awesome. Um, so, so this new version of of Settlers, that's uh, I, I imagine it's not for Amiga. Well, yes, that's I guess for the new platforms like PC and stuff. Right. But um, I didn't hear any details about it yet. They just announced it at Gamescom and said it will happen. Um, yeah, you know, um, which is interesting because, yeah, because. Bluebyte um, was bought by Ubisoft, but it's still kind of an independent studio. Right. It's not like like they they changed the name or something. If you look at other publishers like EA, they take over the studios and close it. Yeah, Ubisoft doesn't try to, at least. Um, so um, of course, it now says Bluebyte Ub- Blue Ubisoft, yeah. but it's still Bluebyte. It's now the German section of Ubisoft. I miss old Electronic Arts, like when it was still Electronic Arts and not just EA. Hmm. I was looking at some games on eBay. One of the things that I was noticing was uh, there were a couple of, of EA or Electronic Arts games, Starflight, Starflight 2, stuff like that for sale with the whole the whole box thing, you know, with the with the map, the big fold-out map and the manuals and the, the code wheel and all that junk that used to come with it. And it was, I was thinking like, Electronic Arts used to be cool way back when and then something happened and they became ea and they're not so cool anymore they had the really cool idea of of like treating their their developers like rock stars you'd open up the the skater die i remember you'd open it up and on the inside it had like the the, the three coders and graphics guys and whatnot sitting up there like in their skater garb with bios like and stuff. Did, right yeah. right and now it's you know you don't know who worked on any game anymore at ea but that's neither here nor there yeah that's I got true. I got some news while we're talking about Amiga. Um, yeah, sure. I just found out about this thing. It's the, the it's a Kickstarter um, for the Checkmate A fifteen hundred plus Amiga PC case. So what this is? is yeah, I was surprised about seeing um, a Kickstarter for a case. Who needs yeah. a new case? But hey, I'm not an Amiga user, so I have no idea. Well, yeah, it's it's an interesting concept because what it is is it's kind of a recreation of the Amiga 3000 case, right? So it's it looks like an Amiga 3000, except that it's made to hold 
there's there's two flavors of it. It's either a PC case where you can put in your you know your PC motherboard, your you know micro ATX or whatever whatever they are now. I don't know. Uh, like <clears throat> like um, the Commodore sixty four case. Uh, yes, yes. But there's also a second version, which is for Amiga motherboards, where you could take any Amiga motherboard and cram it into this case. And the one thing that I think is cool about it is that if you get the, the version for the 500, there's a, like a riser card that plugs into your, your expansion. Because the Amiga 500 has, it's got your trapdoor slot on the, trapdoor in the bottom for your RAM expansion. But then on the side, on the left side, it's got like another little door that opens up that's got, it's just an edge connector that's right on the motherboard, which I don't know what, it's a Zorro slot. I think it's a Zorro 2 or something. But um, what this does is it's a connector that goes on that and then rises up and gives you like three other connectors. So you can put cards and stuff onto this that you normally wouldn't be able to cram onto an Amiga 500 because just because of the way it's set up. So I thought that was pretty cool because that gives you a bit more functionality out of your 500 that you might not be able to otherwise get. Because of the new case. Yeah, because of the new because case. Because you have, you have more space for right. cars. Right, exactly. Okay. So, um, and they're doing, they're getting up there. I mean, they have, right now, as we're recording this, it's got 29 days left on the Kickstarter. So by the time you're hearing this, it's probably got like 27 days left. But... Um, Currently, they have they've raised thirty three thousand five hundred pounds out of the seventy seven thousand they're looking for. In American dollars, that's forty three thousand dollars out of a hundred thousand dollars. So they're almost they're a little less than halfway there, and they still got a month left to go on this. So it's it's very possible they could make it. Okay, well, so you think so? You think the main use of the new casing will be? to have more cards inside the case instead of hanging them outside of the case? Well, well, so the, the Amiga 500 was a weird was a weird duck because it was kind of like the TI-99. You know how you'd put the expansion thing onto the side and then you'd have to attach something else onto the side of that? And if you really wanted to get a lot of stuff, you would have like this 25-foot-long computer with just one thing connected to the next, right next to each other. And that's kind of how the Amiga 500 is. The Amiga 500 has that that slot on the side that, like right now, I have an ACA 500 plugged into it. So it's, it's a little accelerator that sits there. But now that doesn't have a pass-through, so it's using up that slot. So what this does is you have, like, a riser card that plugs into that slot and then gives you extra slots that you can then plug in. So I can plug... And that is part of the case. Yes, that, that's one of the inclusions ah, they said. Ah, see, I see, I see, I see. So what did people do without having such cases? Just having this um, slot used up and no other possibilities to attach more cards? Yeah, pretty much. Some cards, um, like on an A500... Um, some things like there's hard drives that you can stick on the side, you know, your 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 uh, GVP hard drives or whatever. They'll have a pass through that you can then plug something into the side of that. Okay. And I've seen a couple where they've got like like three or four things plugged in. There's like a RAM expansion thing, and then there's another thing plugged into there, and then there's another thing plugged into that. But with this, this will allow you to kind of <laughs> keep it within this little case. Great. And, uh, yeah. And it also gives you the ability because 
Um, I, I'm pretty sure that's just a Zoro slot. So um, that gives you the ability to plug video cards or whatever else things that you can plug into an Amiga 2000 into your 500. I'm looking I see. Right, yeah, I'm looking right now. So there's a... Uh, it'll allow you to plug in standard Zoro 2 cards, including full size. Um, you can have your ACA 500 with your A1200 accelerators. And you can plug Zoro 2 cards, or Zoro 3 cards into it too, but they'll run at Zoro 2 speeds. And why is that? Because the Amiga 500... Only has a Zoro 2 slot. It doesn't have a Zoro 3 slot. Thanks for explaining to me. Because my first impression was like, why would you why would you um, need a case? Hmm. Can't you use any other case? Obviously, you, you can't. Oh, well, I mean, I, I imagine you could. I've seen some Amiga 500 tower conversions. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that they did make those uh, expansion cards. But I don't think that they... They're not. They're not common. Hmm. Sorry that I don't comment on it so much, but I have no idea about Amiga. <laughs> and most of the time, I have no idea what they're talking about. But it sounds interesting. Yeah, there's there's some interesting stuff. If you want to check it out, pop over to uh, to AmigaSystems.com. That's where you can check it out and you can take part in the Kickstarter. Again, they're at. A little under halfway there, and there's still about a month left, so it's entirely possible they could make their goals, which would be neat to see. Will you participate? I just might. In the funding? I just might, okay. because I like the idea of putting my thing in a case that a lot of people towerize, or, or, well, I've seen some that are towerized, but it's usually a process to do because there's no, there's no like ready made Amiga 500 tower cases that you can just flop that stuff in. I have my Commodore one in a tower case, but that was made. The for problem it. is, the problem is there are just no <clears throat> software updates anymore. Yeah, but but it works. I mean, it works. It just doesn't work very perfectly. Um, <laughs> it yeah. was an early. The, the, the C one was was one of those. It was a C one was a growing pain. I think we had to we had to do that to get to where we are now, where we can have FPGA-based machines. Yeah, like, the GTP in contrast was really good. Right. And, and and that also was a stepping stone to things like the Mega 65. That's true. Which is still coming along. They're, they're, um, uh, I was looking at, their, at the stats, and honestly, it's almost, they're so, it's getting so close. The case is 89% done. The VHDL is 96. Geo's adaption, 84%. Mainboard is 92%. Software bundle, 23%. They're still working on that. Brand establishment is up there. Like, I mean, they're, it's, I am super impressed with the Mega 65 guys because they are totally like, like just chugging through this and just getting it done. Even, Despite, you know, how long it takes, you know, whether they, they meet deadline or not, by God, they're getting it done. Hmm. And supposedly in the first half of 2018, which is over, um, there were supposed to be 20 machines sent out to software developers and C65 engineers and whatnot. And community influencers and journalists. I, I haven't gotten one yet. Have you? No. Maybe we need to have these guys back on to see where they are. <laughs> Seriously, because we 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 did a, a follow up with them, and maybe it's time to do another follow up and just see how it's going. Because 
because I'm still jazzed about this. I still really want this. Yeah, me too. Yeah, so good. So you got the news this time. Um, yeah. Anything else I missed while I was at Gamescom? Um, yeah, but I don't remember what. Let me look it up again. I wrote it down and then it stopped being written down somewhere. It's, it's incredible how much you lose touch if you are away for oh, one week at Gamescom. Tell me about it. And then it. the week after you're concentrating on editing your video interviews. <laughs> yeah. Um, we also yeah. have another thing that I just saw is um, in news. Um, the, we've talked about the FPGA SID, oh, probably eight or nine trillion times in the podcast. Yeah, but it wasn't released yet. As of the last update that I see on it is from June, so not long ago, okay. saying okay. that um, um, they're releasing the hardware design to production. Um, and they'll be getting the first pre-production samples a few weeks from the end of June. So they, they're going to do extensive testing, and they expect to have devices ready for sale beginning of September 2018. So it is now September 3rd as of the recording time. Nothing is for sale yet, and I haven't, we haven't received anything about it. You know, we, we did sign up. I, I did sign up for it. Uh, we haven't heard anything yet about it. But I'm still holding out hope. I mean, it was only, you know, less than, it was two months ago, you know, June 24th, which is the end of June. So July passed, August passed, and we haven't heard anything. But that could, because they're testing it, maybe they have to to tweak some things before final production. But I would love to know what they're doing and, and what, what the deal with it is. Especially mm -hmm. if they do put it on sale, that would be, because this could be a very good alternative to, um, the ultimate swings it. The, yeah, because I don't know that the ultimate. They, they, did they stop production on that? No, they actually said um, they would offer it maybe from shops. Okay, but that's not certain yet. Right. So I mean. So the last announcement was they consider they consider stopping production. Okay. If they really do. Nobody's knowing yet. Right. It's it's just rumors. It's nothing confirmed yet. Yeah. There's there's some uh, the 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 ultimate swincid and the other swincids that are around. Um, yeah. Are are good basic replacements for a sid. If you have a sixty four that needs a sid, and the sids are getting expensive and they're getting a little bit tough to find at times. Um, so and they break a lot. Yes, yeah, so this could be it could be a good valid thing to have. For me, I like having things like, and I know the ultimate Swinson did have mouse support. Um, I like to have in like, contrast to the original, um, right? That didn't because the, did, because yeah. the SID of the the the, uh, the SID chip also controls the the mouse you know pointers and, stuff. and paddle. Yeah, paddle. and paddles. Yeah. So I like to have everything kind of working. So no, 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 you got it wrong. Let oh. me let me correct that. Mouse and joystick worked, but paddles didn't. Paddles did not. Okay. Because uh, yeah, because paddles work like an analog joystick. Right, right. La while mouse support is something totally independent. Right. Okay. And jo digital joystick too, but paddles work like an analog joystick. Okay. So. So either way, for the general 64 
user that's hooking it up to do some gaming or something. A Swinstead works fine because your joystick works, you get some sound, which is similar to what the SID would make. It's not exactly perfect, but then the SID from SID to SID sounds different. So, I mean, you yeah, know, but this anyway, a lot yeah, different. It's, it is, you different. can you can see it's more surreal, yeah, and not going through right, um, analog filters, right? Whereas the FPGA SID is it has it has your your paddle support, it has um. It's actually two. It's a dual SID. There's two of them on on the one thing. So you'll have you'll have dual SIDs with this with this uh, device. Um, and it's because it's FPGA based, it's a little bit better at at copying what the SID does than the Swin mm-hmm. SID. And from everything that I've seen, it sounds great. Um, but they didn't they didn't release any example yet using a lot of weird filters like Shakes the Street from Turbo Outrun, the first course, or Mechanicus, which used the filters to make an electronic guitar. Right. They didn't use any examples like that. If so you look either on they YouTube, are not ready yet or they, they just If you look on YouTube there are some videos of it handling filters. Um, I okay. think that it's it's really gonna come down to when it comes out, finding out you know what happens, and then potentially having some firmware updates, mm. you know, or something that can that can kind of tweak it a little bit if there are any weirdness, weirdnesses. Mm. But just well, in terms of is... functionality, I feel like it's a better solution altogether if it'll actually work. Because I've got I got two machines. I have a sixty four C, which is my main workhorse machine that I do most of my stuff on. It's got and it's got a uh, a SID FX in it with the with the with a sixty five eighty one and an eighty five eighty, um, I also have a one twenty eight, a flat one twenty eight. I would love to have dual SIDs in there. I don't really want to get another SID effects because that would require me to get the SID effects and then get the SIDs to put into the SID effects. Whereas with this, this could be the one stop solution. Just th- slap it in there; it's good enough to go. I don't use the thing all the time, hmm. and it gives me what I want to be able to do with it. You know, in in mm. one small package, mm. which is why I signed well, up for it. Well, the problem is FPGA um, based sits. They will be good if the C sixty four testing cartridge, the official one from Commodore, um, will not detect it as faulty, right. because that is happening with all the sits. Oh, really? Swin sits. Yeah, oh. that's happening with all the swins. It's interesting. It's saying it's defect because it's not acting like a real sit. So, if it's sounding correct and all the testing software is detecting it as a real sit, then they did a good job. Oh, okay. And nowadays they have a lot of stuff that detects sits. Sit FX. It yeah. detects the um, ultimate swin sit as unknown sit. Oh, model. okay. Yeah, you have you have these um, the Commodore Mark II, which probably I didn't try it, which probably has a similar problem. So there are a lot of applications nowadays that misdetect the Swinset, um, mm. and um, if they make an FPGA set that acts like a real set, is detected like a real set, and sound like a real set. Then they would have something awesome. Because um, 
FPGA-based SIDs or SIDs that sound like the original were promised since 2001. For example, uh, the first time was the Commodore 1 was supposed to have a monster SID mm-hmm. that never was released. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, you know, we, we even spoke to Jens Schoenfeld and he said it was possible to make a 100% perfect sounding SID replacement. Isn't released yet. Right. So... A lot of people said it's possible, but nobody did it yet. Yeah. And you know, when when we said at one podcast show in the news that um, the um, the Swinset Ultimate sounded pretty close to the uh, fifth um, eight the, yeah exactly. Then Matter who listened to it said, "No, please, in the next show say it's not so close because I'm not promising it to be, to be sounding <laughs> close." So you know, um, so yes. Hmm. So if the FPGA set is really what it's promised on the homepage, then we will have the first replacement set that's actually detected as a set without errors that will work on all hardware that is based on SID detection. And that not not not, not alone that, it's also some games that yeah, yeah. have um, different filter options because of instruments, you know. There is a and video they, online in which yeah. they have the FPGA SID and they're playing through a bunch of games that have music that is, is difficult for it. And then at the end, they do show a bunch where it does not sound right at all. And this is earlier on in its production, so they may have fixed these things by now. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so they are a few challenges. Yeah. Oh, there's a lot of challenges in recreating the SID. Mm. And then you have the pitch problem of NTC and Paul too. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Yeah. All, all those. Which were which I'm discovering. All those little things. Which I'm discovering because I I got my um, I got my um. FM Yam. Yam 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 FM. Yam FM. Yeah, I yeah. got my Yam FM and it works works like a charm, works beautifully. The only difference is that um when you play back you play back songs that are um that are half FM Yam and half um SID and because I've got an NTSC machine, the SID the the, the um the Yam FM's chip plays everything back at the correct pitch, correct speed, everything. The SID plays things back at the proper speed with it, but the pitch, it's pitched up because it's NTSE. So it sounds a hot mess because it's it, the pitch is so off. It's so off key from the other thing that it's just your options then are just to, to disconnect the audio from the SID. And just use the I, FM. I never, ne- never actually used both at the same time. Hmm. That was one of the first things I tried, and it's just because you plug, you plug the thing, you plug the audio from the SID into the Yam FM, and then you you take the audio from the Yam FM and plug it into your external audio, and then it kind of it mixes them in the cartridge, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it can be rough when you're on NTSC. Unless mm. unless the music was made for NTSE, in which case then it would sound weird on PAL. Well, I hope the implementation for Cineworld will fix that. I hope so too. Well, from what I gather, um, the 
from from what people were saying, the uh, it is properly pitch shifted for NTSC as well on our implementation of how we do the NTSC and PAL fixing. Yes, yes, yes. Exactly. So in in that case, then it shouldn't make a difference. But yeah. we'll, we'll see. Because Actually, some things where they say it's it's pitch shifted properly, it's not. Well, um, well. I mean, we had five coders on it, and yeah. nobody said it's faulty. So I hope it's correct. I mean, we had 18 years to fix it if yeah. it was wrong. Um, also in the news, we have, uh, I think, probably one more thing, which is, um, so online services for the 64 exist. There's there's BBSs out there. There's, there's 422 different variations of Wi-Fi modem you can get now. And so there's lots of BBSs. Um, our own Kevin... Kevin Castiles runs one. It's called Centronian. Gary so too. Gary runs uh, yeah. runs Scorps Portal. Yes, there's there's yeah. quite a few of them kicking around. There's also um, QLink Reloaded or rebooted or whatever it is now. That's that's going. That's operating. Uh, there's people on there. I actually I've been getting email from people on there almost daily, which is the weirdest thing to go. A lot like let me go on to QLink to check my email. How freaking bizarre is that? Um, but that that exists. Um, we talked a couple podcasts ago to uh, Steve Sullivan, who is one of the guys behind Habitat, which was kind of an extension of QLink, but it's an, you know like a massive multiplayer online environment for mm. the sixty four, which we need to get you signed up to because we yeah. haven't done that yet. And I also have. I've also got it set up so where I can record it. I can finally make my 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 playthrough video on it. So there's that thing out, um, and then there's another one which I had kind of heard peripherally about, but I didn't understand anything about it. It's called uh, it's called Plato, P L A T O. Um, it is an older system. It's been around since the '60s, and I guess they were used largely on mainframes on in schools and learning places learning places yeah that's a great one <laughs> i are i are smart um so so plato was this thing that that you would log into a specialized terminal to access and it had games it was you know an online community happening in the 50 or not the 50s but the 60s and 70s up through i think the early 90s is when the last one went offline that is the one that I pointed you to, right? Yes, yes, you did. Um, that was totally awkward, and at first I didn't understand what the project was about. Right, right. No, it's 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 difficult because I'd never even heard of heard of this before, and uh, evidently this has been this is this is I mean this is way beyond even retro. This is like retro retro computing, but. There is a there are two servers currently up. The one that we're talking about is irata dot online, um, and the thing is called Plato Term. So there's a Plato Term for for the Mac, for the PC, for Linux, for the C sixty four, for Atari eight bits, for the Apple II, and now there's one for the the TI ninety nine I think, and. From talking to some people about it, it should theoretically run on anything. So that means that an Amiga version could come out in the future or whatever. And it's a strangely graphical thing. Like it, it's there's sort of line graphics, which I get the feeling like the original machines did vector graphics. 
but I could be wrong about that because I haven't really dug too much into it. And there is a learning curve because, because remember, this is the, the 60s and 70s before keyboards were really kind of, uh, were standardized. So when you're on there, there's a lot of, you know, press next to continue. And it's like, well, there is no next. What do you, what do you want me to press? You know, or like press the data key. Well, what the hell is that? So, you know, you need to kind of, there's a documentation you can download that has the layout on the C64 that tells you what keys do what. But it's really interesting. And I just dug into it finally for the first time a few nights ago. I downloaded the terminal and I set up my, my, my Wi-Fi modem for it. It's default at 12, 2400 baud. So it's not super slow. But and, and 2400 baud compared to 1970s baud rates is pretty freaking good. Um, but yeah, it's a really interesting thing with an, with an online community, which is, I'd say, more active than the Q-Link community because Q-Link is Commodore-specific, whereas this has tons of different, you know, again, Windows and Linux and Mac and C64 and TI-99 and Apple II and Atari 8-bit. So many different systems can log into this thing and make use of it. So I... I, I Recommend people check out irata.online. Look at the check out the term, download the one that that is relevant mm. for you. Read the documentation because you need to read the documentation. Nice. That sounds good. Anyway, Kim Justice is right there. So we're gonna go and talk to her now and discuss some retro computing stuff. So we are here today with Kim Justice. She is one of the big YouTubers. Um in the retro gaming community. Uh, welcome Thank to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's um, looking forward to a good little chat. Mm-hmm. Well, un- unfortunately, you've come to our podcast, so ah, I, don't, exactly. I don't know how good it'll be. But I'm sure I can solve it all out. Well, yeah. I guess. Well, I guess let's start with the typical question: How did you actually? start being a retro nerd and um did it start with the um, ZX spectrum or with the c64 or how did it start yeah well it comes i mean my first computer was a spectrum uh, my dad used to work for amstrad Ooh. Um, yeah and um so i got um a plus two pretty so that, i mean that was pretty early on in my life i was only about four years old at the time so it kind of started from there just um playing like old Codemasters games, like the old Dizzy games, or that was things I love back in the day, Death Chase. Um, can't really think point like the exact point where it's like, oh wow, I'm just gonna hit. It's like I started playing games then, like for as long back as I can remember, and just never stopped really. And mm. I never stopped. Like I wasn't ever one of those ones either who, um, like, as soon as like the new thing comes along, you don't play the old thing again. So I always kind of stuck with my Spectrum and my Amiga and my Mega Drive, even though I had like PlayStation or whatever around. <laughs> I just like everything. <laughs> so, right. so yeah, that's kind of how it just started from there. Hmm. So it was actually the, 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 the ZX. Um, mm. That's pretty cool. So you, so having someone that actually worked for it, you probably got a lot of cool stuff as it, as it was released. Yeah, no, really. Alan Sugar wasn't there. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily like the most giving man, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> But yeah, I think that's kind of how my dad like, became aware of it anyway. Because I think he was um, he was a driver for them. Hmm. But, but he did but he did um, work with 
Mr. Sugar a few times. I remember he serves me right. I mean, it was a long time ago, as I said, I was only, a, well, barely a toddler back then, so. Right. <laughs> but yeah, no, it did. Um, but I mean, it was great back in those days because, I mean, in the specky days, you could go to your local corner shop or a newsstand or whatever and um, buy that budget Spectrum games worth £3 for a cassette tape. And so you could get classics with your pocket money. It was nothing like, you know, these days for how much games cost. But. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that here in, in the U.S. we had... Uh... The 64, I, I had a C64 growing up, and that's pretty much all I had for the longest time. Mm. But you could go to, um, you know, Toys R Us or the, the local, yeah. you know, a lo- local toy store like that. And there was always a section in the back there with the, mm. you know, key punch software, which was, you could get for $5 or $10, you could get the, the game. There, it was usually a collection of games, and they were mm. piss poor, awful budget <laughs> games that I don't know. Where these dudes came from, but I, I had, and, and they were all these gold label discs. I had so many of them, and I still do have some of them. And they were, I, yeah. I, you look at them once, and it's like, yeah, I don't ever want to see these again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes you would get a bit of a duffer, but I mean, it's a strange times. I mean, back in those days, like late eighties, early nineties, it seemed like everywhere right. kind of sucked games. It's like bookshops, <clears throat> games, corner shops. Like if you, if like got tanks like. A, takeaway or a video rental shop sometimes they'd even be like an arcade machine just in the corner mm-hmm. i mean i remember playing um there used to be a video shop down the end of my road and used to play shinobi on there and i just we drag a we drag i drag my dad there like every night it's like not to rent a video but because shinobi was there <laughs> <laughs> just and um it? great britain is also known for actually preferring Tape games over diskette games, right? Mm, and yes. um, people always said when when I when I when I spoke to people from UK that it's because why would you buy an expensive diskette version if you can get two tape games for the same price, right? Despite exactly. the slow yeah. loading time, mm. British people obviously made tea between the loading times. <laughs> yeah, do something else for those three minutes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on like, the format that you get growing up. I mean, Spectrum was tape only for well, the longest time. I think, well, I mean, obviously there was the Plus 3 model, which had discs, but that wasn't out till 1989, by which point the Spectrum had already been out for seven years. I mean, C64, obviously, had tape and tape and disc options, but even then, it's like, obviously, Americans, most C64s have the disc. But, yeah, we'd always have the data set and get all the games on tape for that system. Yeah, mm. I, I didn't see a data set until until years and years after I had my, my original. I got it in 86, I, I think. It could have been 87. Uh, my, my brain doesn't work anymore. But yeah. Um, yeah, but I had disk drive with it. And then years later, uh, my brother picked up a 64 from a garage sale or somewhere, and it had a, had a couple of data sets with it. And it was my first time seeing cassettes. And... Mm. You know, they were, you know, the, the packaged cassettes and, you know, with the, you know, in the case and everything. And I'm like, this could be cool. So I tried them out and got halfway through loading. And I'm like, this is not cool. And just never, <laughs> never touched them again. <laughs> well, well, I have an, I have a key experience with diskette releases from UK. 
Um, and that was when I recently, like three months ago, I got a cheap copy of uh, Last Ninja from System 3, which is an Ameri um, um, a British publisher. Mm -hmm. And I would say um, Last Ninja, the first, ver um, the first release, actually, on diskette is a floppy killer because they in they used um they used a fast loader that has mm -hmm. copy protection in it and it's it's accesses it's um accessing the drive 100 percent all the time so mm -hmm. and if of course of course if you switch off the drive you can't load the next level because all the code is erased so uh, that that was that was the worst fast loader in an original game I've ever seen. So even back in the eighties, you were like, you were like killing your floppy if you want yeah. to play through the game. That so they should have packaged it with a fifteen forty one drive just in case you break the one you already have. Yeah, that's a serious workout. Yeah, for the yeah. floppy drive. Yeah, I had this this game that I, I loved playing when I was a kid and. Uh, it was. I never finished playing it. I got it for Christmas, and I played it up until I got to a point. There, it came with a, a, this little orange card that told you how to do things. You know, an yeah. electronic arts game, and yeah. um, and of course, me being you know eleven, I lost it. And so when I got to the point in the game when I needed that card to understand what I'm doing, I have no idea what I'm doing. So I. You know, I probably spent a good six months trying to figure this game out and then finally just said to hell with this and, and put it away. Now I've gotten the game again. And they can't... No one seems to have been able to make a good version for emulators. And I, obviously it won't run on a D64 on the 64. So I actually got the original discs, went through a, this big, huge thing to try to back them up because, of course, they're copy protected and, and they don't want to do that. But every time you put a disc in and it access the discs... It's got this most violent, like, as there's, there's that, that, you know, that head hitting thing that the, the 1541 does. This is that times a thousand. Yeah. And I am shocked that, that my drive, well, I always, I had a, my 1541 too went bad after a while. It just stopped working and I could never figure out why. And now I'm thinking like, yeah, six months of that is what did it. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that was I just my I experience. Yeah. I yeah, had I, one game, um, uh, one cassette game. It was really weird. Uh, it's Karnoff on the Spectrum. And I always had the biggest trouble trying to load it up. It wasn't a good port or anything. It was okay. Graphics were all right. But for whatever reason, and I don't know why, it's like it would. I would try to load it about 20 times and then. When I, I would open my manual and turn it to the page with the loading instruction in it. And it's not like loading games on the Spectrum was difficult. You just put it in load and press play. But it would only work if I was on that specific page of the manual. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like it was like supernaturally. It like knows that you're not paying attention to the instructions, so it screws up. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. Weird things like that. Without yeah. fail. Yeah, anyway, my point was that System 3 really didn't pay attention a lot to disk drive owners. At least that was my impression. minority in England. So, um, I wonder, how was it for you as a child? Did you dream... Um, I mean, uh, uh, let, let me rephrase that question. Actually, 
did you have this war like what is better spectrum or c64 or was it for you um, all 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 good all retro well it was kind of like the spectrum c64 i mean we certainly had that back in like the mid 80s because the c64 did get pretty popular over here i mean by the time that i got the spectrum load that time had kind of passed like most people would have already been on to like amiga or mega drive was just on the way so and i mean and and i kind of got my mega drive 1992 so then it kind of became more like mega drive versus super nintendo that would have been the one from my generation so how did you progress further from that i mean you are a big youtuber and i wonder um how how did you make the transition in, in the um, 80s did you dream of being a youtuber <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, Good I had question. a vision that 20 years from now <laughs> I would be. Um, no, um, the YouTube kind of started. Um, basically, I was in um, a few years ago, what, 2012. I was in university. I was doing a degree in a TV production, so learning how to make videos, films, all of that. And during the summer break, I thought, well, I kind of need some because it's quite a long summer break for uni, about four months. And it's like, well, I need to um, keep my skills. I need to practice, basically. And so I just started because I'd already um, I'd like posted on message boards and I'd and I'd done silly little things here and there talking about old games. So I thought I'll make a review. And um, and I like Sega. And at the time, there weren't many Sega things online or um, or that many Amiga things like of that sort of like edited review content. Plus, it was still kind of like a lot of stuff was quite negative still. You still had a lot of um, like people like ripping off ADGN, mm, like right. video game nerd. Um, so I kind of thought, well, I'll just start doing this. Yeah, it goes and um, and gradually it kind of got its audience. Like I did some videos early on. I did like my licensed game series, um, sort of like little things like my least. <laughs> Funny enough, talking about trying to be positive, I did like a video on my like my least favorite Mega Drive games, which got quite successful. <laughs> but um, just the things like that, and then sort of gradually over the years I kind of just found my style so it, it kind of started off just like practicing just as a hobby because I like making videos to um, where it is now which is kind of my career hmm. just through building up the audience is it Take a career a because most people that making career of um, out of it usually have like a half a million I maybe maybe I'm mistaken but um, I always thought that under a certain limit you you have to have a second job at least well it's um it's part it's a, it's a big chunk of my career i mean i am um, i have um like various ways of making family i do like journalism as well on the side i do like games journalism i do video editing times for other people but it's all stuff that um is kind of connected like it wouldn't be happen without the youtube channel so essentially it's all under the kim justice banner plus on the youtube i've got the crowdfunding as well, which has been, I mean, Patreon has been a real boon for, like, creators who don't necessarily have half a million subscribers. Because mm. um, it allows them, if they're kind of good with the service and are able to provide something for the people who pledge them, it allows for great connection with your fans and they can support you, you support them. Right. So it's kind of opened the game up and allowed, I think, quite a few more people to make it a bit more of like a free time living. I mean, my decision to kind of go full time was I was in a job at the point and it was kind of um, it was a job with no forward progression. Like, and if, and I mean, if you've ever been in a job like that, you know, it's a bit of a 
frustrating thing to know that it's not really going to get better than this. Mm-hmm. So it's like, and the YouTube channel's going, I thought, well, let's see how it goes. And um, it's gone pretty okay so far. So it's a typical YouTuber story. You were bored with your day life. I mean, I mean, hey, I mean, if you if you if you look at YouTubers and they tell you the story, that is like what 90% of YouTubers tell you that they had a boring job with no forward progression. Well, that's pretty yeah. much everybody in the world. And then suddenly it's, you know, uh, you, you know, I think everyone, if you if you ask them how they're doing, it's, you know, I have a boring job. But a lot of people don't have the 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 skills or the the wherewithal to think you know like oh i can i can do this i can i can or don't have the yeah. don't have the um um the yeah exactly that right the drive to kind of drop everything and just start doing it full time because it's a risk it is a yeah, risk it's difficult yeah it's it's a chance that i felt i had to take and i mean even if, i mean the money is not much different but it's not really about the money it's about the fulfillment as well right but being happy as well with what you're doing is more important really than a lot of things i find okay so so i wonder um as most youtubers are bragging about that youtube takes full time and they don't have time for anything else you know (laughs) meeting friends answering to fans going on Facebook, answering messages, people uh, harassing them with tons of emails. That obviously didn't happen with you. So you, you make something different. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think thing with a lot of YouTubers, I mean, it kind of depends on what sort of like content you end up being. I mean, if you're like someone who does like daily content, like that is a grind. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're like, you have to like, have at least ideally have at least a couple of videos in the pipeline you know you've got to be working to do something every day i mean that can be a pain in the ass i mean with the sort of things that i do i mean i try to make sure i get something out most every week and i usually do that but um it's about i mean having you know done that actual work like education all that you know learning to like manage your time as well is kind of an important thing i mean it's um YouTube can be, I mean, for people who are, feel like they're stuck in their daily grind and they're, they're not managing their time and they're doing videos so frequently, it can be um, taxing on some people. I know a lot of people, especially recently, I've talked about, you know, having like mental health problems, like from YouTube. And I mean, and it's hard. I mean, you've got to try and find that time to, you know, take a break sometimes, I think, like if it's getting to you. I mean, and not just constantly feel like you're you have to serve the YouTube algorithm. Like if I don't upload today, it's gonna it's gonna be a disastrous. My channel's gonna die. Right. It's just it's managing time a lot of time. I mean, I'm I'm able to manage my time pretty well. I I, I make sure I don't work all the time. Like I try to keep it as a, almost like a nine to five job. Like I have my on hours and off hours, and so then I have that time to do other stuff away from it. Ah, so it's a matter of time framing. Um, I see. Well, uh, I mean, AJ is smiling, but that is like typical question that's just coming to my mind, you know, because and the general um, um, the general opinion is, as soon as you are a YouTuber, your normal life ends, which is obviously not the case for everybody. No, it's not the case for everyone. I mean, a lot of people I know are still able to. I mean, some people I know do a lot of work and they're still able and they still hold down like a regular job. Still, oh, okay. I mean, sometimes it's good to have that. I mean, it's good to have something part time as well, because that keeps you 
sort of in touch with the outside world right even if you just have like a couple of days doing i don't know working at a coffee shop or something having something like that can be very useful just as long as you know you don't spend all your time in a small office you know slaving away in front of a computer you know you're okay right and there's also you know it also yeah there's also individually you know different people work different ways and you know, some people, for some people, um, editing and, and, and writing and, and producing this stuff is less of a challenge than for other people. Mm. You know, so, for, so, yeah. you know, one person might be able to, to write, film, and edit and put out a video in a day yeah. or two, whereas someone else just writing the thing might take a week. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it all depends. I mean, it depends on the size of the project as well. I mean, I'm, thankfully now, I quite enjoy editing. I enjoy, like, the busy work, the little, like, sort of mundane things you have to do. It kind of allows, it's like, I can zone out a bit when I'm editing cause just because I can put all the stuff together. Um, but it's also okay sometimes you just have to be in the mood as well. Like, I tend to work, I tend to work in spurts. Like, I have, like, a big spurts, like, and I'll suddenly just write and write and suddenly be like oh well written load and sometimes sometimes it's hard as well like you, you get a writer's block and, mm-hmm. and it's like i can't think of anything right. it depends on the time is right just try not to put too much pressure on yourself like that can be kind of a negative thing if you're really like pressuring yourself thinking oh god i have to do this then it's it's a it's a fine line between pressure and panic see that here yeah um so so i wonder um, because that was recently a topic for certain people. Um, how do you make sure you make um, creative content and uh, that people are going to subscribe to your channel? Because there are so many retro YouTubers. And I yes. wonder, is there anything you can produce that hasn't been talked about for 20 times already? <laughs> yeah, it can be hard to find things that haven't already been done i mean i'm i am a big believer in that having your own spin on things like even if a topic has been covered maybe your angle on it is different to other people saying you can look at it in a different light um i don't know i mean there's still like lots of like weird little factoids out there that you know you can spin something from like i know super trolley was like a good video for that one i mean that was kind of something that hadn't been talked about the game that was um <laughs> well basically sponsored by someone who turned out to be a monster jimmy savile um oh, yeah yeah and it's like it's sort of like looking at kind of dark things like that i mean you find these little things out and try to make them into a youtube video i mean there are still fresh topics out there and also i mean if you i mean i like to as well sometimes i'll do a video that's not necessarily about games I'll do a video on like Mr. Blobby or something like that, like some classic old British TV. Mm-hmm. That's just a bit weird and wonderful. So, I mean, that kind of helps freshen things up as well. And it's like, if something like that is successful, then it's like, ah, if that's a hit, then that means that I've got a whole more things to look at on that one. Also, I mean, sometimes you try something and it's not a hit and it's like, okay, maybe we'll try again next time with something else. But it's kind of, um, that experimentation is kind of can be one of the fun things about YouTube. Like rather than like just sticking to one thing, like just sticking to Sega or Spectrum or Amiga, like thinking of like what else can I, how can I broaden things? 
Right. And there's also, you know, feedback and whatnot that you can get from your, your audience helps to, mm-hmm. you know, Definitely. round down what, because when you're doing stuff like that, you're sort of, while you are working for yourself, you're also kind of working for your audience as well. Yeah. So getting feedback from them, I would imagine, could also help to narrow down the oh, sorts of things I that mean, you're looking at. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I always listen to like the comments always like have an idea of like sort of things that they'd like to see from me. And I mean, obviously, you know, you have to filter out some stuff of the comments because you will sometimes just get quite negative things. Well, yeah. But sometimes, a lot of the time, I mean, I find I have a pretty decent comment section. And they'll come up with good ideas, or I'll get ideas from that other source, like my girlfriend will come up with a good idea, and things like that. And it's like, oh, okay, that's something that I can maybe work on. But looking through videos, you don't you don't seem to be the kind of person that is disabling comments in the first place, because that is what some YouTubers are doing, you know, that producing very controversial stuff, and then they are in disabling comments just <laughs> just in case, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a believer in disabling comments. You can say what you want. <laughs> the, the YouTube comment section can be one of the worst places in the world, and yeah. I kind of, I, I sort of enjoy it for that. <laughs> it can be, a, it can be an absolute hellscape and sometimes yeah, like when you look yeah. at some people's like videos it's like bloody hell <laughs> but i don't know it's it's a part of youtube i mean it's like early on like if, if when i started youtube i got and i got a negative comment like oh like it'd affect me mm-hmm. but i mean it's it's been years now it's like right if, I've, I've had everything said to me that's gonna be said to me so it's, so i can i can just filter out the bad stuff and focus on actually the decent comments of which there are loads i mean you'll get most like you probably get like 50 good comments and then one bad comment so you know the way the way so uh, to thinking too much about the bad comments doesn't really add up like ratio wise but i guess constructive comments you use as a way to improve with mm. future shows i mean i guess there's always a way of improving especially in oh, YouTube, yeah. you know, different ways of cutting videos or whatever, or different techniques. Yeah, getting more creative things, mixing things up. And yeah, you're just getting, like, everything to, like, get a crisper project. I mean, when you start out YouTube, I mean, I was... I mean, people, like, sometimes ask, you know, about, you know, how do I start YouTube? And it's like, just, just experiment, just have fun with it at first, because at first it's only going to be a hobby. Like, some people try immediately start and think they're going to, like, immediately make money in that that doesn't happen it takes a while to make anything let alone mm. i mean i remember like i was so happy like like four years ago it's like i actually got my, my first like check or not check but payment from you from youtube it was like 30 quid mm. <laughs> so, so it's like, <laughs> and the so next big all, thing is the yeah. uh, play button i guess from youtube the what yeah we should see oh, the yeah. big button yeah the old um 100k i mean it'll probably still be a while for me there but you never. I mean, YouTube is a crapshoot in a lot of ways. I mean, we can all have like different things to say advice, but I mean, you never know the thing. YouTube, you never really know like how what's going to suddenly be successful. You might you might have an idea and think, oh, this is an absolute. This is a banker, and mm. then it flops, and then you have another video that's just like, oh, okay, this is just a kind of minor video, and then it, it it's a hit. You just ne- you never know with YouTube. Right. Hey, Jurg, if we mm. get a play button, who's gonna get it? 
<laughs> I, I have no idea. There's so many. There's so many people that are doing this. Like, like who do we, do we like? Just kind of keep sending it to the next person every month. Like we each get to have it for a month. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've I've no idea. Yeah, I guess I, I guess first you have to earn some money and let's see. Well, I'm still waiting for that have, to happen. Ah uh, well. <laughs> yeah. Well. Anyway. Um. Um, oh God, I, I totally forgot my question now. <laughs> I do love criti- <laughs> I, I do love critical comments on things. One of the first videos I did, one of the comments was like, you know, dude sounds like he's on a respirator. And like, all right, maybe I should sit back further from the mic. <laughs> <laughs> Don't eat the mic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Frustrating things can happen in the community at times. Oh, the community yeah. can be terrible. The community can be a horrible, horrible place. And it, uh, it's how quickly things can change. I mean, the Spectrum community used to be such a nice place, for example, and then yeah. the Vega Plus happened. <laughs> yeah, that's. I wanted to talk about the Vega Plus because this has been. I have been watching this thing. I, you know, uh, the ZX Spectrum or the ZX Spectrum, as we say in the US, uh, was never. It, it wasn't really big here in in, in the US, no, but it's no. one of those things that. It's it's a fascinating machine, and I've I've always been kind of interested in it. And they tried to break America, but failed miserably. Yeah, yeah, it was the Timex. Yes, the Timex. Yeah, the Timex Sinclair. Um, yeah. So, I, I, but I've been watching this debacle with the the ZX Spectrum Ooh, Plus. Terrible. Yeah, and so from what I understand, they've shipped out like demo units or something. Yeah, um, I think about. 10, 20 people maybe have received Vega and, and there was about, I think, how many backers did they have? I think about 4,000 maybe. Right. I think had that back in. Um, so, yeah, basically, I think, and a couple of people who got units, um, I know particularly one person who I know who did a video on it as a um, guy, um, Retro Led, Led's there, Kieran. Um, he did a video on his and just saying that, like, I mean, the quality of the unit compared to like the CGI like mock ups they made is horrendous. Like even beyond the lowest expectations, you have to put like tons of force onto the buttons just to get them to work. You can't add games on the SD card without doing some ridiculous things. It crashes all the time. The screen flickers. <laughs> the general build quality is so terrible. Someone said, um, like the top edge of the Vega unit, you could actually use it. Someone actually used it, and they could cut paper with it. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! It's not the most comfortable unit, apparently. I mean, I've not had the pleasure of holding one myself, but um. I'm... <laughs> Oh, it's not man. only a game machine; it's also a it's also a killing machine, you know. Yeah, and it's been they've they've uh, uh, Sinclair has pulled their they can't use the branding on it now too, right? It's they can't know because um, Sky had um when Sky bought Amstrad off Alan Sugar, they got the rights to Sinclair, um, and yeah, they said recently like because of, like the conduct of RCL retro computers, yeah, you're not allowed to use the branding, but um. Which is one reason why perhaps these units that have come out are prototypes from a while ago, because the Sinclair branding's still on it, and it shouldn't right. be. They can't use it anymore. So if they're going to produce new units, then if they do, then that's <laughs> obviously going to have to come off. Although a lot of it's just paper anyway. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So so how did we get there? Because 
How be- did we get there? Yeah, um, because well, there's okay. so many, there's so many of these crowdfunded things are coming out for different machines, and we're seeing it with the the 64 a lot. You know, the the 64 mm-hmm. mini is out, okay. and yeah. uh, you know, there's there's a you know a mechanical keyboard that's being produced, and there's you know all these different things that are now being produced for the thing, and they're all yeah. fairly successful. So it's not like well, the thing with the the intro. I mean, the Vega project, I mean, the original Vega, that started with perfectly good intentions. And um, the guys who did that, um, and that was mainly uh, Paul Andrews, name is, and uh, Chris Smith. Um, and then they get into partnership with a guy called David Levy, Dr. David Levy. And um, that's where the Vega Plus came in. And then they left the project. And funny enough, I know that I'm pretty sure Paul Andrews and Chris Smith worked on the, um, they worked on the C64 Mini, I believe. Hmm. Um and so there's been a lot of legal squabbles in the couple of years since it was very, very acrimonious and still is to this day between the previous owners of RCL and the current. And I mean, David Lewis, I mean, he has a he has a history in a chess, I believe, um, kind of where he started. And I know he, he I think he also produced um, back in the day, he produced a very quite a very obscure Z80 machine, uh, the Enterprise one to eight. And if even you know that, I have heard of it. I don't know. It's a very obscure. I think it, it got popular in Hungary. Okay. So that was kind of his background. But um, then the Vega Plus, um, yeah, I mean, people kind of gradually realised that because RCL just weren't really showing anything. It was like they had a few prototypes, but that was it, and it just gradually snowballed from there. Like just relations between company and consumer reached all-time lows week on week, and it got very ugly. And they were also yeah. using. They they raised what like they raised a a, a boatload of money for it, mm. and I mean it's all going towards legal fees and and lunches yep. and, mm-hmm. and things God that knows what else. yeah stuff that has nothing to do with the development of the mm. system itself. Well, the thing that worries me is also crowdfunding projects. I have to say the um the Atari VCS worries me. Oh, the new one. Yeah, the new one that mm. worries me. I mean, I, I won't, I won't not be worried about it until they actually show something physical because, like, it looks fantastic in pictures, but these are just CGI mock-ups. These are just renders. Yeah, these but just it's just a, it's just an Intel box, though. It's an x86 powered thing. Hmm. I mean, but that made I know I, I, I didn't, I did not think that would make as much as it did. Hmm. It did but, well within within two days. It was funded or something. Yeah. Within, Easy. I think it was funded within an hour. Oh, you see, even faster. <laughs> yeah, see, Yikes. no problem. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, if I mean, if that if that comes out, and I mean, if it comes out, then fine. It, and it ends up just being like you know annoya, in which kind of people kind of ended up want ended up thinking they wanted it more than they actually wanted it. Then okay, but if it ends up being vaporware, that's well. Be I mean, there. I mean, there were other examples like the DTV. Uh, the, sorry, I mean like the uh, C64 Mini that was called D64, and mm-hmm. I remember 2016 when the Indiegogo started. Everybody was like, "Oh, Whopperware! This is fake, and he's never going to show up anything. And it's going to be crap." And then, mm-hmm. then HJ and I were talking about it, and it was like, "Wait a second, that's Darren Melburn." He did the DTV. Why would he release crap, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, steal people's money? I mean, he has a good reputation from the DTV. Yeah. So we invited him to, to the podcast. At this time, I think we were one of the first that actually talked to him. 
because others were like, oh, I don't, I don't want to be connected to that project in any way. Yeah. And um, uh, some, sometimes maybe people are over careful. But on the other side, with the VCS, um, people are not careful enough. It's mm. like it's like either side. There's no middle way. Yeah. That's at least my opinion, uh, my feeling about it. People are either too happy and throwing money at people that are not deserving it or or mm -hmm. being too skeptical, you know? Mm -hmm. what, what do you think of the new uh, the Intellivision relaunch? Um, well, it sounds like they're going to go about that one. I mean, that's a Tommy Taluico spin, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think they've already kind of said that they're not going to do crowdfunding for it. Right. Whether that holds true or not. Um, okay, um, I mean, I'm interested to see how that looks. I mean, it's not something that really interests me much myself. I mean, in television, it's never really been something that interests oh, me. Oh, it's majorly. terrible. It's utterly it's utter yeah. awful. Some, I mean, yeah, it's, it's like more than... I mean, I don't think we never... I mean, I think in television did come out over here, but I don't think many people bought it. So there's not much UK nostalgia for it. I have, um, I do have the Intellivision Lives PS2 collection. Hmm. That's about it. It's a couple of cool games on it. <laughs> I didn't even hear hear about it until I saw one person playing Donkey Kong. <laughs> it was like, okay, yeah. okay. I'm I'm curious yeah. about it because you know it's they're not the, the VCS the new the Atari VCS. It's an x86 platform. I think it's like Steam powered or something. So it's yeah, yeah. just generally it's an off the shelf box for playing mm. games. Whereas the television, they haven't said what it is, but they're looking at like a custom architecture and they've oh. got, you know, no 3D games. They have to be simple. If you can't explain it in one paragraph, <laughs> then they're not going to publish it. And it's, yeah. it's a whole different strategy than we're seeing a lot of, a lot of people doing. And I'm just yeah. kind of curious to see how it works out in the end. I will be interested. I mean, I think they've got it. Um, they're doing a press event in November, I think it is. So, yeah, I, I mean, I would look forward to seeing what they come up with. If it's going to be something different than just a regular old, you know, box with, like, a pie shoved in it or whatever. Right, right. Well, I mean, also, the main problem we have here is, might it be with YouTube or producing uh, retro machines? Everybody is trying to cash in on the retro <laughs> hype. Yes. <laughs> So, so, so yeah. are we yeah. creating a bubble? Are we are we building a wad for our own back sort of thing? Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's I mean, obviously that's something for the makers of these machines to write about. I mean, for the buyers, it's I mean that is what it is. It's right. like if the bubble bursts, then hey, prices go down. Mm -hmm. Oh, I would love like retro to be cheap again. I would love that. Certainly, because I mean, I well remember using to buy like back in the early two thousands Mega Drive games three quid a pop. Nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, I think people are figuring out too that games are, and, and again, this is something that that we've said over and over. But you know, a good game is a good game. It doesn't matter if it's mm. you know pixely and old yeah. or if it's brandly new. And mm. people are starting to understand that, and and so it's not so. Yeah. True. It's not so taboo to go back to the old stuff anymore. I mean, I don't think we're ever, we're probably ever going to have like a like big jump in generations, like as there was from say Mega Drive to PlayStation. Right. I don't think there's ever going to be that sort of jump again. Um, so yeah, I think like the like groundbreaking technical side of things that used to be the big thing back in those days, like which consoles got so so many bits. 
and everything. <laughs> like if, like it meant, like if you if you ask them, like, oh, how many bits are in a PS4? Yeah, you'd be able to actually answer that question. Does it matter anymore? <laughs> Is yeah, that no. really thin? <laughs> so, does, does it have blast processing? Does it have? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> marketing, marketing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no, the tech, the technical side doesn't really excite people as much as the actual quality of the software. So yeah, I mean, I think with that sort of market, yeah, people do realise that yeah, the good stuff now or good stuff then is good stuff now, good stuff forever. Right. The, yeah. the only jump, the only jump I can see in technology is if they can, for some, if they can somehow like, like uh, eliminate like the, the dead eyes of people in these games. Mm. It totally yeah. throws <laughs> me out. If you're playing a game and there's like it's it, hyper realistic graphics, and then it goes onto someone's face, and it's like, Ugh! yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay. never paid attention to that. Yeah, it's so it's um, so jarring. If it's cartoonish, you can deal with it because you know it it's cartoonish. But when everything looks perfectly normal, then you get to their face, and they're they've got just these. These, you know, lifeless shark eyes in their skulls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like it is a bit jarring. Yeah. But I think I think another cool thing about like gaming today is that I mean, with like platforms, I mean, obviously it's kinda of sad that physical content is becoming less and less of a thing. But I think we have seen kind of a return of like almost like bedroom coding mm. in a way. And like mid range software that kind of wasn't really there, especially not in like the last generation, like the PS3, 360 generation, when it was just so much just all mainstream, pretty much, even the indie titles. It's like now you have like games like just being made by one person again, becoming really successful. I mean, Undertale is probably the grand example of that in the yeah. past couple of years. And we're Flappy kind of Bird. Bedroom coding. Sorry? Flappy, Flappy Bird. Bird. Yeah, Flappy Bird is a huge example. Um, and so seeing a lot of that again, kind of like game development is coming very open to people. You don't need loads of money mm. to get into it. And back in, you can do it yourself. Right. Well, if you don't have the money, use crowdfunding. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think, I think if we ever have a burst of a bubble, um, it will cause some... Um, game publishers to actually close down because what what i noticed um arranging interviews for gamescom here in germany that i'm going to attend soon is that a lot of publishers actually buying ips from old dos games or something yeah. and it's coming a bit you know like a new larry game you know mm -hmm. like a new aquanox um, is, is aquanox ever going to be like what is what is the stat because i keep getting emails about aquanox and and I keep getting emails like, you know, like, like, here's a new event that you can try out. But it's like, is the game, is it, is, does it exist? Like, is it a thing you can play? Well, yes. I mean, I, because I have a beta, but... Um, this is going on at, like four at, years now. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's taking a bit longer than expected, but they are, they are hoping to release it by the end of this year. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, that's another thing that um, small developers um, take longer to release games, well, or because... games are not as good as announced. Uh, for example, No Man's Sky was a <laughs> was a prime example there. Yeah, No Man's Sky. Yeah, I mean, certainly when it first came out, I mean, they're doing well with it now. I mean, it took a long time to get it there, which I, I respect them for, because, I mean, a lot of people, especially after the first reactions they got, 
would have probably just left the table. But mm. they spent the time actually making it into like the game it was supposed to be. That so you know I respect them for that, and they even got up to mixed reviews on Steam, which they made quite a celebration about. <laughs> like, sure, wow. just, we're mixed now, yes. After <laughs> <laughs> just being negative for so long. But but maybe this is a bit off topic because I don't know. Are you even into newer games? Because that's clearly not retro. Ah, uh, it depends. I mean, there's some. I mostly do stick with my old fins. But if there's something new that I like, then I'll happily play it. I just I tend to prefer more plug and play. You know, pick up and play experiences like short term fins as opposed to like sitting down and playing again that I know it's going to take me 60 hours or whatever. Right. And so, yeah, that's that's just kind of my thing, especially as I get older. I, I like more arcadey stuff. So I like anything new that kind of sticks to that value. But generally, you know, the old stuff is always just... I have to admit, I bought No Man's Sky because of this unique graphic style. Mm. I thought it was graphically absolutely interesting and outstanding, and I wanted to play this game. And I wasn't disappointed because I had no high expectations about the mm. gameplay or how much you can do, so I never mm. was disappointed, you know. So. Mm. I'm an easy customer. Hey. Well, what was the know? big complaint about it? That, that you couldn't... That two people couldn't meet in the universe... And see each other in real while they should. That you, that that um, the planets were too equal, even though it was supposed to be thousands and ten thousands of possible mixed combinations. Yeah, and that variety never actually happened. Mm, but yeah. maybe, maybe Kim, you know better than me. Yeah, the marketing made it seem different to what it was like. The marketing like, made it seem like it was going to be like quite a big multiplayer thing, that there was going to be so much variation. And there is now. But I think also another thing, like, aside from those kind of fairly like over-the-top comments made by Sean Murray, was like it was kind of the game, especially at first, which would have it would have been all right if it was like a cheaper game. But Sony like, markets it as a major title. And, ha and Hello Games, the guys who make it, it's only a small studio. It's like... 10 person studio i think it's not many yeah um yeah. so it's like if it if it had been like a 30 pound game it 20 pound game even it'd have been it done all right but because it, it was like a full price game people got a bit annoyed and it was a bit and it was quite unstable as well on release and there were all like technical issues plus it wasn't as promised hmm. so yeah people got very annoyed <laughs> <laughs> very toxic again <laughs> so um did you did you actually play it yourself um i've played bits of it i mean i've had a look at it. it doesn't really seem major like my top in it's one of those games i do have it actually i have it on my steam but it's wow. like like many games on my steam it's never been played on there <laughs> wow so, yeah. so maybe it's we should try and meet game. each other I got a few of those. yeah i do think yeah I, I think maybe you know if i do fire up steam maybe i'll actually try it out especially now it um because it looks really good now like, yeah now, with the like, patches oh, and the content the no yeah. man's sky next it, like, i see a lot of people post screenshots and i think that looks good <laughs> so um let's getting back to the retro topic a bit <laughs> for a change um 
What's your opinion about Nintendo re-releasing, you know, NES Classic Mini, Super NES Classic Mini, and so on? And um, I actually was talking to the PRs, um, to the PR company of Nintendo, and they told me, "quote the the chance that Nintendo will ever talk about retro to any media is zero." So. I wonder why why they never talk to anybody about it. They they only want our money, but they never actually want to talk to the press about the yeah. retro topic. They like to keep things a bit mysterious, don't they? Yeah. Um, sadly. Sadly, yeah. I mean, because there's so much that they obviously have in their vaults that you kind of think if they open them up more, then like you can imagine that just imagine like the sort of things that would be there mm. um but that's i mean that is their prerogative unfortunately i think i mean a lot of it is because it's kind of been their prerogative in a lot of things like don't they really like understand new media in a lot of ways like i mean they try their best but i think mean, like the core the core of the business like the head honchos it's not really something that interests them to like embrace like youtube gamers that sort of thing like they kind of it's there's always been quite standoffish with us. Um but I mean as far as like the actual machines themselves, I mean they're fine projects. They've obviously done very well for themselves. And I presume that there'll be a Nintendo sixty four one coming soon. Um I mean they're fine. They're fine for what they are. And I mean it's perfect for someone who just wants, you know, to have like a bunch of, like the best games that they know from their childhood. And, be able to just bump that into their modern telly without having to, you know, get into like the whole retro scene and do up a NES or SNES or whatever from scratch. I mean, it's not some. I mean, it's it's good for like the more casual game. I mean, I mean, I've got like an actual like Famicom and SNES with like EverDrive. Ooh, ooh, okay, okay, okay. Now you just said the word SNES. SNES. Okay. Yeah, I, when, I noticed that too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> When when you were younger, and 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 it was actually like like a popular that was the current system. Mm-hmm. Did you refer to it as the SNES back then? Yes, absolutely. You did okay because uh, because gosh. we're hearing it a lot. We're hearing SNES it a lot. SNES. SNES, and for the life of me, when I was when I was younger, and that was the system we called it the Super NES or the Super Nintendo. We never called yeah. it. The, the SNES was not oh, a thing sense. that we ever yeah. said. Yeah, in Germany too. You said Super <laughs> Nintendo. You said SNES, but you didn't say SNES. Oh my uh, god! I don't know where it came from. I mean, it must. It just must be one of those weird UK things. Mm. <laughs> I mean, when like someone does, whenever it was like first mentioned on like Games Master, I mean, they said SNES or yeah. or Super NES was one we often used to say. Super NES, even yeah. weirder. Oh my god. <laughs> Yeah, um, but then you, you'd get with like it's like in Australia they don't say Sega they say Sega. Mm. Like, okay, where that come from? Yeah, it's well, like, but they did change people. the games for it because at Sony games they said Sega. Yeah, okay. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's just one of those weird things. Okay. Yeah, we've been, I've been trying to figure out the I'd etymology of that for a couple of years now because yeah, everyone's find it out. <laughs> I don't know myself. So, um, let's talk a bit again about YouTube. How do you start your usual idea for video? How do I start my ideas? Um, 
if I it's not too much secrets. Uh, no, it's not really secrets. I mean, I have various sources. I mean, I get requests, and um, that's kind of one thing that's also part of my patron that people request things on there. So that's always a good place to, and that's cool because then that often gives me something to play that I might not have touched before. Hmm. Um, I come up. I mean, I have like. I don't. Sometimes I have like I have like Google documents filled like perhaps like the starts of ideas, and sometimes I'll get something from there, and or there'll be other stuff that I put there, and then I never think about it again. Um, YouTube comments as well. Going back to that, sometimes they come up with a good idea for something. Like I think it was there when I got like an idea for doing like a bunch of football gamers without actually playing them, and just to look at what like the computer did when you didn't touch it, which mm. kind of was quite an interesting little experiment. I always love doing that. Mm. <laughs> it's great to play a game and not play it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I used to I used to do whole seasons in like uh, the the hockey NHL whatever, and I just have the computer play itself. Mm. I do that a lot with um. I I love playing a fire pro fire pro wrestling, mm. and I don't usually play. It. I just like sim matches like between like two wrestlers on the computer, and it actually that's like, quite good. Mm. Yeah, it's just that's basically like, like watching wrestling. Play. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ooh. like early let's plays. Just let the play, play uh, the computer play each um, against each other. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh. See what see what it does. Yeah. It's be quite interesting. 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 Um, one thing that that I figured since we are doing scene world is there are a lot of topics that actually uh, nobody is touching or people that that nobody is talking to um for example i remember like uh, seven years ago when when we released an interview with david crane from atari and yeah. chris crick from epics who was sound matchers epics you know mm. the first reaction from people were like are those interviews fake i was like okay i spent eight years of my lifetime finding the phone number of Chris Crick. I'm pretty sure it's not fake. And um, another thing I noted is a l um, very little is known about the, um, the, for example, the Brazilian market about the Megatrive tech toy and so on. Yeah. So yeah. I, I wonder why, why some topics are never covered. Are people like yourself or other YouTubers um, not spending enough time trying to track down the truth or the people, or just wonder. I think it kind of depends. I mean, it's funny you mentioned the Meg like Sega in Brazil because I did a video on that. Um, so it's like, I mean, because I was always interested in that, and you get like some cool like Brazilian exclusives as well for like the Master System and Mega Drive. Um, I think. I mean, a lot of it is depends on like how much research some people do. I mean, there are some people that like really go like the whole nine yards with research. They'll have a look at like contemporary magazines. They'll try and see even if they can get word from the actual people themselves. And some people are, you know, better at, like presenting like stuff they get from like a surface level. Like they go to Wikipedia. It depends on how much work you're willing to put in and like interest in the subject. I mean, as I say, I mean, I think it's only been in the past couple of years. Where I think that there's been kind of a surge in like you like European-based YouTubers who have had like quite good channels and quite successful channels, like people like myself, uh, DJ Slope, Nostalgia Nerd. Oh yeah, another example, yeah. Nostalgia Nerd. I love his videos. Yeah. 
who kind of cover yeah and, and like we cover things from a more like british perspective and as opposed to like because i mean i remember back in the day like you'd often have like like people kind of thought like for example like there was a video game crash here in europe back in the like early 80s as there was in america when there wasn't like computers were a big thing here and so we didn't have like that damn massive downturn in the market exactly yeah mm. yeah but yeah. and kind of like but now that there's more like sort of a different like worldview, you have like different YouTubes coming from all parts of the world. Like you have more people interested in like different things as opposed to just one perspective, and can actually talk about their different scenes intelligently. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So um, I mean, just to just to stick with the Tecto example, because you made a video on it, and we oh. we actually. Did, did something about it too. Um, it took me six years to actually find somebody at Tectoy that would talk to us because oh, wow. either people were telling me, oh, I'm not responsible for anything PR related or I don't speak English. I was yeah. like, okay. <laughs> so, um, so, and, and HA tells me all the time, oh, I would have given up on it already. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's rewarding you when know, you find Enough to and, and my friends always tell me I never give up on people. I yeah, try that's it. the if thing. It's like if I, if I ask somebody, you know, you want to do want to do an interview, and they're like, no. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, some people, yeah. Some people, like, maybe they think that no one's actually interested when, yeah. like, people are. It's, um, like, like the Oetra guys. Um, they wanted to do, um, like, they were bugging um, Andy Crane, who used to host Bad Influence, for ages to get a video. And well, people aren't interested, and finally he agreed to it, and ends up being a very popular episode because, like, turns out people are. <laughs> right. There's yeah. kind of that side of things as well. And people are just kind of maybe as well a bit shy as well, a bit shy about actually talking about things. Oh, that, oh that's, that's, um, I mean, I mean, <laughs> I mean, our number one problem is people, uh, guests tell us my English is too bad. Mm. I'm like, yeah. Uh, well, nobody cares about your accent. We just want to get your story. But it's interesting. I mean, um, for example, our third episode was about the Peruvian Z64 scene. And mm. I actually find that some of our content is actually referred to in encyclopedias and books of mm. researchers about video games. I say, wow, hey, Seaworld awesome. is mentioned in a, in a history book. So... <laughs> It it seems that it's that more and more people should mm. try to contact the pioneers and getting more of the stories preserved. Yeah, because there's so many stories from so many things. I'm sure that just have not been told. Because I mean, everything's over focused on like American history or mm. European history or Japanese history, when there's obviously so much more out there. Right. Um, but but if I'm not mistaken, you are not doing interviews in your YouTube channel, right? That's not one of your things. Um, I have kind of, um, I do have things in the pipeline as far as actually Ooh. doing interviews go. So okay. Okay. There's okay. One particular, there was one particular, like, my ne kind of my next big games company documentary where I'm trying to get an interview sorted out for and go okay. off to Cambridge and do it. So I hit a soft spot here. <laughs> in a way yeah <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah I mean it's about you know I think yeah it's kind of one of those things like again it's like how do I change things up I mean like you do like the documentaries and they're good but 
know, how can I make them even better? And it's kind of that's one of the things. Right, right. Well, um, one thing I always do is um, people are often getting back to me saying, oh, I've, I have already been interviewed 50 times. Why do you want to interview me? And then I'm like, okay, because I'm asking you different questions and maybe I'm triggering something that you didn't think of. Yeah. Um, so that is actually what I try to do. I look at um, interviews the pioneers or the VIP person did to other sites or other YouTubers. And then I would say, okay, what was never asked before? What could I ask? So mm. maybe that's also a way of approaching people. Well, that's ah. just my, my personal experience. Yeah, yeah sure. And But I mean, it's interesting yeah. to hear. Yeah. Some people are kind of honed in it. Some people are perhaps a bit less forthcoming. But, you know, if you get like them in the end, you just, and it turns out it usually goes well, doesn't it? You can surprise them. Oh, yeah. Hmm. And even if it doesn't go well, we can edit it and make it sound like it went well. <laughs> Magic of editing. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, this never happened to us that people told us, this interview was absolutely horrible. Please don't release anything I said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I wonder, did you ever... Did it ever touch you when uh, YouTube changed algorithm or changed how payment was done or something? Because uh, yeah. in the recent two years, um, YouTube did a lot of experiments. Uh, and yes. some people said, you know, there were videos like my YouTube channel is going to, to be down and I'm going mm. to stop making money and I'm poor, I'm getting poor whatsoever. What's your I mean, opinion that, about the changes I mean, on YouTube? I, I mean, there were kind of changes in ad revenue that were a bit annoying. I mean, the annoying thing a lot of the times with YouTube is that, you know, they don't tell you anything. So all of a sudden this happens and it's like, oh, right, okay. And so, I mean, as far as, like, people, like, like getting videos flagged and that, I mean, I know a lot of that was kind of, like, various, like, political channels, which didn't really affect me because, I mean, my channels, there's nothing really political in my videos usually. So, but... I mean, it's not. It's what's annoying is like the lack of transparency more than anything. Like, you, I wish that YouTube were a bit more open about like the algorithm and like what their what their plans are. Because, yeah, that's just kind of the annoying thing. But it happens a lot. Like, it happened with Patreon recently, a few days ago as well. Like, suddenly they changed their financial operations from the US to the UK, and it, and it had quite an effect on creators. Because hmm. like suddenly people's payments were getting marked as fraud or fraudulent, and it's like oh, <laughs> so some people got hit badly by that. I mean, I've kind of been lucky, like Touchwood, in that I'm not being majorly affected by anything, but always got to try and you know keep your ear to the ground, see what's going on as much yeah. as you can. YouTube. Now, now Patreon actually had a, a, a bit of controversy a couple maybe a year ago or so when they decided that they were going to change the way in which um, creators got got yeah. their money. They were going to take a chunk out of it. And they actually responded when when content creators complained and said that, you know, this is not going to work for us. They, mm. they went back and they said, you know, sorry, we screwed up and, you know, put it back the way it was. Yeah, it was kind of, um, it was something they kind of felt they had to do. I mean, because they wanted to, um, well, they want to try and make sure that people get paid up front. Mm -hmm. um, or that, and that all that people have to pay up front because... And that can be kind of awkward for some people. It's um, 
it's again it's one of those financials and i'm i'm not exactly one with like an accounting brain to like know like the ins and outs of why they wanted to do this thing it was um again it was just transparency just tell us about these things like maybe you know to get our input before just saying right we're doing this in a couple of days lump it <laughs> right right mm. now, youtube conversely can youtube has a lot of i've seen a lot of people um talk about the inherent problems with youtube in in that you know people will will flag the videos or or make a copyright claim against them and yeah. youtube doesn't doesn't tell you anything about it like you can't find out who's making the claim you can't find out you know no. what you know what the reasoning is and a lot of these there's a lot of accounts that are just sort of there yeah. to make copyright claims against stuff yeah. that you you may have made a video completely on your own, made your own background music for it, done everything for it, and they're still putting the claim and Yeah. You know, ridiculous. Right. And and for that whole time that you're getting that you're fighting it, you're getting no revenue no from money. that. Yeah. It's is yeah, that's again well enough and and sometimes you want to like seriously fight a claim like to in order to actually fight you've got to give like the fraudulent claimant basically everything. <laughs> right. Like right. Your, your address, like all your details before you actually find out layers it's like is um again it's like youtube just again relying too much on the algorithm trying to make it all computer controlled and mm. still kind of struggling with it i mean mm. youtube i mean it's um and it's especially i mean it used to be like back in the day like youtubers could just get by with ad revenue alone right and it's it's not really like that anymore and so kind of people more and more have had to find like side projects side interests or or like getting sponsorships like doing sponsored content hmm. which is kind of the more traditional way of going about things i suppose i think that's kind of where youtube is perhaps headed more of a hybrid between new and old as and we'll said, see how much of that um as i as i am um, sorry now i lost track as i said you are making um youtube like your main thing that's like the dream of many youngsters you know i want to make youtube for a living so what what you are you saying those you gotta stop saying youngsters because you say that word and it just i i, I just feel like we're old you're like there's youngsters <laughs> these days okay okay no, no no insult intended i'm sorry <laughs> i just i just wonder if it's a good idea to to be a youtuber full-time nowadays from zero or if, you should, or if you should have a backup plan just in case, I, you know, fails. you have to have a backup. There's, you there's some to. people. I, I follow a guy on YouTube, and his whole thing right now. He's got Patreon followers. He's putting these videos out. He's living. He, he's, he's traveling across the country, and he's living in his, in his Jeep, and that's the whole gist of his thing, right? Yeah. But the, the dude's like 26 years old, so okay, that's fine. When he's 50, he's not going to be doing this anymore. So he's got to have something to fall back on because mm. it's not self-sustaining. It, yeah. At least, at least you know. Again, you know when when we're seventy, is YouTube even going to exist still? Yeah, who knows? I mean, I I think I was thinking YouTube's got to be something that you start as a hobby. You've got to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's not for everyone. Like if you try and if you try like to start it from scratch, like as a full-time job. It's not going to happen. Right. Right. That's kind of how I feel, anyway. 
but yeah, I mean, people, I mean, especially like, you know, kids, <laughs> they, you know, they see, I don't know, Ninja playing Fortnite and getting all these ridiculous followings and think, hey, I can do the same thing, but it's not that difficult, it's not that easy. You know? yeah. I mean, yeah, sure, he's gotten to a position where he can play games for a living and he's probably made, already made enough money to be set up for life, but that's, t- it, well, it takes a lot of luck. <laughs> right. You've right. got to be lucky to get into that position as, as well as like putting the work in. Mm-hmm. To build an online following, <laughs> right? Exactly. Hmm. And um, so, well, as I said, you you did this um, media thing. You, you even graduated in it. So after YouTube, you can simply be a video director or producer or something. Yeah, I could do that. I could um, go into like the actual proper filmmaking. Could go into education. I mean, I'm whatever you know what works out there. You know, I can throw a hand out. You know, I have a go. <laughs> I'm kind of that sort, of, that sort of way inclined. <laughs> See if I enjoy it or not. Hmm. So yeah, so yeah, I have I have things to fall back on. If you if you if YouTube ended tomorrow, I'd be all right. Well, that's good to know. Let's go over to um, um, what's the what's the other one? Uh, Vimeo. Uh, Vimeo. Yeah, just go over to Vimeo. Yeah. Going to Vimeo or like Twitter video or whatever yeah. Facebook. <laughs> Everyone's trying to get their own thing running. Hmm. <laughs> I wonder is there any YouTube video you regret doing? Um I like I tough that, questions. <laughs> um I wouldn't really say there's much stuff I regret. I mean obviously some stuff I look back upon now and be like and I'm like, ooh, you know, that wasn't as good as it could have been or whatever. You know, a couple of things, like, I don't know, what's one, like Tomb Raider, maybe. Um, I mean, I've just, just sort of feel it was a bit rushed, that one. Um, just a couple of things, like, I wouldn't say I regret them. Like, it's just, you know, if I'd gone, if I'd done it later, I could have done a better job. That sort of thing. But it, it's, it's all kind of part of finding your voice on YouTube, finding your style. You do things that perhaps weren't good at first, but they get better over time. So, all part of the process, really. Right. Hmm. I mean, some YouTubers are deleting their old videos because they think it's not that's, meeting that's the happens. quality reference. That's what happens when you look at stuff that you've done. This is why when I release a podcast and I put a video up, I don't ever look at it again. Because if I look at yeah. it, I'm going to go, oh, God, and take it down. Yeah, cringe, cringe, cringe. Yeah. Um, yeah, that does happen. I mean, I've never taken anything major down. Taken, I've taken down some like rubbishy, ranty videos, but nothing. I don't think I've ever actually taken one of my. The only time I've actually usually take a ed, like, an actual like proper video of mine down is if it's got a claim on it, hmm. and because I'm not having some other someone make you know bollocks money from right. the work that I've done. Right. So I'll, oh. I'll take it down and then re-edit it. <laughs> I see. I see. <laughs> and. Um, What's the video on the opposite, on the contrary, that you are the most proud of? Videos that I'm most proud of. Um, there's a few over the years. I was proud of like doing the license game series. I think that was a pretty big project back in the early days. Um, Street Fighter, like the movie, was one I was very happy with. Um, generally, a lot of like, the company documentaries as well, I feel with probably the most, the biggest one though was uh, the um, not a game one actually, the Heroes of Wrestling. Is probably the one that I kind of point to and say, 
that was pretty much exactly how I wanted to do that. And it's one that I look back on fondly. Or the uh, Peter Molyneux four-parter. I think those two are my best ones. If I if that if I was to just pick ones out, they're not necessarily ones I'd show like first people because they're long. Like the the heroes wrestling ones, like an hour and a half long. It's like feature length. But <laughs> but those are the ones I'm happiest with. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, with with long, that was a discussion we had internally too. That like podcasts are too long, interviews are too long, but it. Mm. Actually depends on the contents. When um, when when we released uh, Mike Clark's interview like a few days ago, mm. we got really good uh, comments in a few hours. So it's like okay, this this was really spot on, you know. Um, but that was probably basically because he he, he uh, told in the interview how awful it was to work in the offices of psychosis and <laughs> how the office was full of rats and falling apart and stuff. Okay. And everybody likes to laugh to hear those stories oh, yeah. about the well, games he developed. Well, also, you know, if, it's, the if there's if there's content, if it's if it's interesting, if you've got a two hour podcast or an interview and you're having a discussion through the whole thing and it's oh. and it's engaging and if you're engaged as an interviewer then it yeah. translates over to something else if you're if you do a two-hour podcast in the last half hour is just kind of so um yeah so right. weather. right right <laughs> then then you're, you're going over a little bit beyond what you should be doing but as long as you can keep the the stuff going then kind of going back to the algorithm and like YouTube, like how YouTube's changed. I mean, YouTube has kind of changed to make long form content like this, like my videos, like or like the podcast and that sort of thing, much more um, viable. Like because it kind of changed like the metric, like from like um, views to watch time is like their main metric now. So it's minutes that they measure. Hmm. So because it used to be like the received knowledge a few years ago, like you shouldn't make a YouTube video longer than ten minutes. Yeah, yeah. but now. Well, especially if you want to put like mid-roll ads in, right? Yeah, the video has to be longer than ten minutes. So which is why you see loads of videos that are just for whatever reason they're like there's not ten minutes of content there, but it's ten minutes and one second long. Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm sure you've seen that a few times. Oh yeah. So it's kind of made like actually doing like long videos more of the way to go. Mm. Those are the projects that YouTube really likes to promote. So um, okay, so let's let's switch to emotions. Maybe do you feel different since you are um, successful in YouTube? Do you consider yourself um, a big YouTuber? I had to give an autograph you... last year, and it was the weirdest thing. Yeah, it's weird when that happens. I mean, obviously, like sometimes if I go to like specific events, like if I go to like a play expo or whatever, where like I'm kind of featured. You know, that kind of makes you feel like, you know, a big fish. Because, <laughs> you know, you'll get people coming up to you saying, oh, you know. I mean, it, it's still like a trip for me. Like, if I get recognised in public, it's like, oh, you know, thank you. Hmm. I mean, I'd never be an arsehole with it. I mean, but I wouldn't consider myself like a big YouTube. I mean, I'm still just YouTube. <laughs> it's just a job, you know. Okay. But it, it's a cool job. I remember HA's reaction when a video game con announced that Scene Wolves will be visiting them. HA said, oh gosh, I'm in trouble. Now they know I will be coming. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, it's, uh, um, it's weird, yeah. It's, kind of, it's, it's cool, though. I, I do enjoy that. Like, 
when you go to events <laughs> like, oh. and it's full they've... of pe- and it's full of people like with your interests as well so hmm. everyone's got that sort of thing in common so maybe maybe you should make a lesson for aj <laughs> how he can feel more comfortable up about mm. getting recognized and writing autographs. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You never really get comfortable. It's just experience, I guess. Yeah. As it happens more. I mean, I remember the first time I was recognized, it was really weird. I was in a casino and one of the staff, and this is like about three in the morning, so I was pretty drunk. And it's a few years ago and and suddenly something comes up, oh you're you're like Kim Justice and like, oh yeah, yeah. And it was um that was a trip. That was like the first time. Wow. <laughs> and and so yeah. Well that so, that happens. Yeah. So I wonder when people approach you to be interviewed like like I did, do you actually make a background check or do you do you, are you open for anybody? Oh, I, well, maybe it's a weird question, but I just wonder if um, at a certain you I know had to, I had to um, send my fingerprints. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I mean, let me explain why I asked that question. I think at a certain level of being known there will be tons of people inviting you for interviews and you have yes. to decide what you agree on and what you mm. put down this is true i mean i'm i generally don't do that much in the way of background checks or anything i mean i had a look and see like like what you guys do and how relevant it is and i thought well obviously it's quite relevant you do computers and that so yeah sure and so but i mean i'm more i'm always kind of happy i mean at first it was it was more awkward like in the beginning like when you do like your first couple ones because it's like you're a bit like afraid like it's like oh what am i gonna say you know am i gonna just die on camera <laughs> sort of thing like and it's gonna be just a dead air pain but yeah it's cool i don't really i'm i'm open as far as interviews go okay it's all good yeah, yeah. never. I, mean, I can there's never dead so, air because we edited it out. It's not live. <laughs> <laughs> that is why that is why our all our podcasts sound so good because we remove all the bad parts yeah. of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you, um, we had some surprising moments sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so I don't know. Um, so where can guess, people go to find out more yeah. about? what you're doing and where they can subscribe to you and join your Patreon and all that. Yeah, okay. Um, my YouTube channel is, uh, if you just search Kim Justice, then ideally I should be the first one that comes up. Just look look for the little fat man. That's my avatar. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm also on Twitter. You can follow me at KimXXXJustice. Um, I'm on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash KimbleJustice. I'm on Facebook, although I don't really go on there that much. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, that's pretty much I, I have, like, various other social media things. I have an Instagram, but I can't remember the URL for that. I've only just set that up. Uh, I do videos. I release videos most every Monday. And I often do streams as well, where you can see me watching rubbish old games television. Probably on Twitch, I guess. Um, I'm, I'm going to be moving to Twitch soon, but I usually do it on YouTube. Oh, YouTube Live. Okay. Yeah. But um, I want to try and get the Twitch going. I mean, once once the weather cools down a bit and it's a bit more bearable to stay in my place for a decent amount of time, then, 
yeah, I want to try and start getting Twitch going. Because mm. all, all like all like kind of all like the people I know are like doing it now. It's like they saying it always seems like lots of fun, and I enjoy streaming. It's just too hot at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's Pump true. Slate next to a computer all day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's me pretty much. That's my social media. Awesome. And we will put links to and all of that in the podcast. Also, you can also, before I forget, you can also find my writings. I also write at Retronauts, and I do articles on weekdays about oh. various news items. Cool. And we will put links to all that in the podcast description below so that people can go and check that out. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time. It was mm. really great to hear about YouTube and all the things mm. behind them. Yeah, cool. No, I've really enjoyed it. Very cool experience. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much, guys. Bye-bye. Cheers. See you later. Bye.